Find uh, Esther chapter 7. When God changes everything. When God changes everything. We're walking through the book of Esther. If you're new with us tonight, we're up to our eighth message now. Looking at the unseen hand of God. When God changes everything, verse 1 says, So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, Then the wrath of the king abated. David Jeremiah writes, he says, God must smile sometimes at the events that transpire on the earth. For instance, the French atheist Voltaire once predicted that within 10 years, Christianity would be totally stamped out from the face of the earth. Well... In 10 years, Voltaire's house had been taken over by the International Bible Society where they were printing Bibles in his home and distributing them throughout the world. Folks, as we look at the events on earth transpiring, there are some things that we don't understand. And at times we may wonder, where is God? Is God at work? Well, we saw last week that even when we don't see in the moment God's handiwork, God is working. God was even at work in the insomnia of the king 
and, and it went even further than that. When the king had insomnia and couldn't sleep and he called for the chronicles of the king to be read to him, it just so happened that as they began reading the chronicle of the kings, they began reading where Mordecai had saved his life five years earlier. Coincidence? I don't think so. Well, tonight we're going to see how God changes everything just when the change is needed. God intervenes not a second too late. You know, somebody once wisely said, God is seldom early but never late. That's true, isn't it? God is seldom early but never late. First of all, I want you to see with me tonight Esther's request. Look again at verses 1 to 4 for Esther's request. Now notice in her request that she was very respectful. Now I want you to recall this is the second day now that Esther has invited her husband, the king, and Haman to the banquet. She invited them the first day and They said, what is it that you want? She said, well, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you everything that's in my heart. And so this is that second day. And Haman is once again invited along with the king. Well, I want you to imagine Haman's mixed feelings. uh, How he must be feeling at this point. He's just come through this time of humiliation. Because he had to lead Mordecai through the streets of the city, seated upon the king's horse, wearing the king's robe and crown, and pronouncing honor for Mordecai. So he's just had to do that. And yet at the same time, he's pretty proud of himself because he and he alone was invited to this banquet. And so he's proud about that. Mixed emotions. Well, remember also, though, he's, when he went home after leading Mordecai through the streets and told his wife uh, what he had to do, you remember what his wife said? She said, you're going down, Buster. Uh, you're not going to be able to stand before uh, Esther and Mordecai and their people. If they're the Jews, you're going down. How about that for en- encouraging wi- uh, words from your wife? Well, again, no doubt he's got a lot of mixed emotions. Now he's whisked off to this banquet again. Uh, Should he be happy or should he be sad? What's his appetite like? Don't you wonder about that? Well, right in the middle of the banquet, the king asked his question again. Esther, what is it that you want? Why have you gathered us here? You can have half of everything I have uh, or up to half of the kingdom. It's yours. What is it that you want? I want you to think with me before we delve into that more. I want you to think about a passage out of the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a beautiful passage. Listen to it. Uh, Solomon writes, there's an appointed time for everything and there's a, a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. 
A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for everything. Now, up to this point, it had been the time for Esther to remain silent. Now, she's remained silent upon Mordecai's advice. Nobody to this point knows that she's a Jew. Again, it has been her time to be silent. But there's also a time to speak up, and that time is now. Whereas silence was once appropriate, now it would not be appropriate. Now, folks, this has been described as Esther's coming out party. You know, it seems that every week now that some celebrity or somebody famous in the world comes out. And usually it's in a bad way, right? It has to do with their, with their sexuality. And they end up telling us more than we really wanted to know about their private lives. Well, up to this point, Queen Esther has had a deep, dark secret. She hasn't revealed that she was a Jew. Again, she has faithfully followed Mordecai's advice. Now, she must have broken virtually every law in the book of Moses. She certainly couldn't have observed the laws of ritual cleanliness or the laws about kosher foods or of special times and seasons and days and, and festivals. In fact, it appears that Esther has blended in with her pagan neighbors. Now, folks, I think that shows that God certainly uses imperfect people. She's certainly not been a Daniel, for example. Daniel who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with anything belonging to the king. And Daniel didn't. Mordecai and Esther do not seem to rise to the level of morality and spirituality of a Daniel. And yet God uses them nonetheless in mighty ways. It just goes to show you again that God uses imperfect people. If, if you're reading your Bible and you're looking for perfect people, guess what? There's only one of those, Jesus Christ. It is amazing some of the imperfect people that God used. I think of a Abraham who lied about Sarah. I think of Moses and all of his complaints before God. I think of a Rahab, the prostitute. 
Now, of course, these people repented and they followed the Lord, but I'm simply saying that they were imperfect people to begin with, just like Esther and just like Mordecai. Well, again, this is Esther's coming out moment. The king must have greatly encouraged her when once again he said, Tell me, Esther, what is it that you want up to half of my kingdom? I'll give it to you. Now, folks, isn't it nice the little confirmations that God so often gives us when we're about his business? Somebody comes up and says something that you needed to hear at just that moment. And it strengthens you. It, it lifts your spirit. It encourages you. No doubt the king was, uh, the king's words had that effect for the second day now on Esther. Now, not only did she make her request at the right time, but I want you to also notice that she made it out of love. She loved her people. She identified with her people. Now that she's the queen, she might could have possibly escaped the consequences of the edict being carried out. After all, who is going to enter into the king's household and kill his wife, the, king, uh, the queen? I'm not saying that she definitely would have escaped the edict of all of the Jews being put to death. But I think it's at least a possibility, given her position and her marriage to the queen, it's at least a possibility that she might have escaped. But she steps forward right here in chapter 7. And she identifies with her people regardless of the consequences. Again, I'm not saying she would have definitely been spared. Because we know from history that King Ahasuerus was a notoriously unstable man. For instance, the Greek historian Herodotus described Ahasuerus as being extremely unpredictable. On one occasion, for instance, at the request of uh, a man by the name of Pythias of Lydia, he asked Ahasuerus that his son could be spared from going into battle with the Persian troops. Now, Pythias had given large sums of money to King Ahasuerus. And he had given also large sums of money for, for Ahasuerus to lead his troops into battle against the Greeks. So you would think when Pythias asked the king to not have his son go into battle, you would think maybe the king would have paid attention to that. Because they were good friends. But instead, he had the son of Pythias cut in two. And he laid out two halves of the boys. And when they were marching off to war, the war that the dad had asked his son to be spared from, when he, when he led his troops out to war and they were marching in formation, he laid the two, according to Herodotus, he laid the two halves of the boy out and the troops marched out between the two halves. 
So he was a very unpredictable man, even among his friends. So again, it's not a given that Esther would have been spared. She may have. But what I want you to see is she risked her life anyway. Not knowing the outcome, she risks her life. She takes a stand with her people. She identifies herself as being one of them, and she intercedes for them. Now, folks, do we love people that much? I hope we do. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he said he wept for his people, the Jews. Because to them belong the patriarchs and the covenants and the law and the prophets. And even the Messiah came from from their Jewish line. In terms of his humanity, that is. Paul said, I could wish that I myself were cursed for the sake of my countrymen. He identified with his people and and he interceded for them. And Esther is doing the very same thing. And she's even being willing to put her own life on the line. She could have died. But she accepted the risk. Folks, Esther is a wonderful example of courage in, in the Bible. Wonderful example of courage. She speaks up at the right time. Do we know when to speak up? Do we know when to remain quiet? She expressed wisdom and discernment in that as well. Well, secondly, I want you to see the king's rage. The king's rage. Pick up reading with me again in verse 5. It says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The king storms out in in a rage. I think he probably felt very foolish. It's probably all come flooding in what a fool that Haman has made out of him. And he puts all the pieces together now of when Haman had earlier come to him and and devised this little plot, this little scheme against the Jews. Now, all of a sudden, the king puts all the pieces of that together. And he begins to see the treachery of this man. Uh, Here's his wife, and here is Mordecai, who has earlier saved his life, And here's the treachery of Haman, and I'm sure he feels duped. He feels used. It just goes to show us we'd better be careful of the decisions we make, right? 
He would, have, he would have been wise to have looked into the situation more when Haman had first come to him, but he didn't. So now he's been made a fool out of. Well, it's been suggested that the king left the room and he went to his garden for a moment to reflect also on how he could get out of this one. How could he get out unscathed? Because after all, this is an edict that he has signed off on. So he's probably contemplating how's he going to punish, how's he going to deal with Haman when he himself has signed off on, on Haman's edict. So it's been suggested that that's probably why he he took leave of absence for a moment to go out in the garden and think about the best way for all of this to play out and try to settle this dilemma that he has. But when he returns, he finds Haman falling all over Esther and, and Ahasuerus in that moment has his answer. You see, harem protocol in Persia was that no one but the king could be left alone with a woman. A woman belonging to the king. Even in the presence of others in the room, a man was not supposed to approach a woman uh, belonging to the king within seven steps of her. According to Edwin Yamauchi in his book entitled Persia and the Bible. And that if any man came near or touched a woman belonging to the king, he did so under sentence of death. So if if Haman did have a dilemma when he walked out into his garden, coming back in and seeing Haman falling all over the couch and begging Esther and all and hanging on to her probably and pleading for his life, now he's got his answer. He can kill him. That Haman should be falling on the couch where Esther was is unthinkable. In fact, it was so astonishing that he would fall on the couch that in the Jewish Targum of Esther, it said that he only fell upon the couch because the angel Gabriel pushed him, sealing his fate. Now, if you don't know what a Targum is, let me explain. A Targum was an Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Scripture. Because remember, when the Jews went away into exile, uh, and they were in the lands of Babylon and then Persia, they lost touch with their Hebrew, their native tongue, and they began speaking Aramaic. And so the rabbis, when they would stand up and teach from the Old Testament, they would read a verse or two of the Hebrew, and then they would pause, and, and then they would tell you, they would, they would uh, give a loose paraphrase of those verses in Aramaic. And then, as preachers will so often do when we're reading Scripture, we'll kind of stop and pause and give you sort of a running commentary and comment on the verses, right? That's what the Targums were. 
the Targums. They were Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew Scriptures that also had the running commentary of the Jewish rabbis added in. And then the Targums ended up being written down, too. Well, again, in, in, the, in the, uh, the Jewish Targum of the book of Esther, the rabbi said, yeah, he's falling on the couch because the angel Gabriel pushed him, pushed him down on top of Esther. But anyway, uh, but again, he walks in and he sees this going on. And he's just enraged at what has happened. Well, thirdly, I want you to see Haman's reward. Look at uh, verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words say the king is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, and the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I quoted from Ecclesiastes a moment ago. Let me do so again. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Up to now, Haman thinks he's gotten away with this evil plot, right? He thinks he's gotten away with it. Folks, we look at the world today and we see all the evil and wickedness going on in the world today. And you know what? One of the reasons I'm convinced wicked people do what they do is because they don't see immediate punishment. They think they've gotten away with it, right? But they've not. There's a payday someday. But even in that, there's grace, right? 2 Peter 3, 9 says God is long-suffering and patient. Why is he long-suffering and patient? So that people will turn to him in repentance and be saved. But we don't get away with anything. We can rest assured that God does indeed bring justice. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. At the end of time, just when people think they're getting away with everything, what's going to happen? Judgment. Judgment's going to fall. Again, Haman thinks he's pulled off the most wonderful scheme. He's pulled off a scheme to deal with his enemies, who he perceived as his enemies, the Jews. He's going to once and for all be rid of them. I mean, he's been in the catbird seat. He's been elevated to the prime minister in the land. I mean, things going good for him. He thinks things are great. Boom. His wickedness is exposed. 
the judgment of God falls on him like a hammer. I want you to turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6 for a moment. Galatians chapter 6. He what? (laughs) She tried to tell him, didn't she? Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then... As we have had, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God is not mocked. God has ordained laws and principles which are for believers and unbelievers. God is not mocked. The word for mocked here comes from a word that referred to a pig's snout. In other words, nobody will successfully be able to thumb their nose at God and get away with it. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. And you reap later than you sow. You don't plant the seed today and get the harvest tomorrow. And when you plant the seed, the crop you get is according to the seed you planted. You reap reap what you sow. You sow a seed. You get a harvest. You reap more than you sow. And you reap later than you sow. And the Bible is saying to believers and unbelievers alike, you can be assured that this this is a principle that God has put in place. God is not going to be mocked. I want us to remember Psalm 139. Remember Psalm 139? King David came to the realization that God is everywhere. I mentioned that last week or week before last where David was saying, you know, if I go this direction, God is there. If I go this direction, he's there. If I go this direction or that direction, God is there. God is everywhere. And that brought a great deal of comfort to to David's heart, knowing that there was nowhere he could flee from God's presence. God is everywhere. And God knows everything. Well, I tell you what, too bad Haman didn't learn that lesson earlier, isn't it? He wouldn't have concocted that scheme to begin with. Again, we don't get away with anything. Jacob killed an animal and lied to his father. Later, his sons killed an animal and they lied to him about his youngest son. Pharaoh tried to drown the Hebrew baby boys. Pharaoh's army was drowned. 
David took another man's wife and committed adultery. His own son took his concubines and openly committed adultery. David killed Uriah and three of his sons ended up being killed. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, had been present for the stoning of Stephen. And guess what experience Paul went through himself? He survived it. But he was stoned there at Iconium and Lystra. We reap what we sow. Well, what do they do with Haman? They put that covering over his head and they take him out on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai and they hang him on those gallows. Now, the Persian gallows, what they were actually, um, they were a pole. The Persians would impale you on a large pole and then also put a line about your neck and, and drop you from that line. After they had impaled you and killed you that way, then they would publicly dangle your body by a rope from up high so everybody could see. That's what Haman had planned for Mordecai. And Haman ends up being impaled and hung on the very instrument of death that he had made for Mordecai. I want to give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, God's people need to learn when to speak up. God's people need to learn when to speak up. Just like Esther. There's a time to speak up. What do we want to do too often times, folks? We just kind of want to hide in the shadows and keep quiet. And that's okay if it's time to keep quiet. But there's times that we need to stand up. And we need to be a voice for God. Amen? So we need to learn when to speak up. And it takes courage to do so. A second lesson, God's people need to think of others and their, their welfare. God's people need to think of others and their welfare. Don't go through life living for yourself. You know, John, John Donne said, No man is an island unto himself. Don't live for yourself. Don't be bordered on the east, west, north, and south by yourself. <laughs> Think of other people. Speak up for other people when it's time to speak up. Because guess what? There may, need, there may come a time that you need other people to stand up for you and speak up for you. Isn't that right? Fourthly, or, or excuse me, thirdly. We need to learn that God is not mocked. 
Again, it's a biblical principle that we are not going to undo. People think they can live in disobedience to God and and they can scheme and all these kind of evil plans and do this or that and they're going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. Even if they get away with it on this earth, guess what? They'll have to stand before the judgment, judgment of God. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And then fourthly, we see here the difference that one person can make, either for good or for evil. You hear people say all the time when something was going on that they should have stood up about. And they said, you know what? I, I didn't think it would matter. I was just one voice. All through the Bible, we see the difference that one person can make. And folks, it works both ways, doesn't it? For good or for evil. I mean, think of a Hitler. One man who is determined for his nation to take over that part of the world and and kill people and, and promote his own agenda... One per how, how many lives ended up? How, I forget now how many mil was it? Fifty five million lives that were lost in World War II. Why? Because of one man, one man who spread his evil. Again, likewise, one can make a difference for good. You might be the only one in your work environment who is a believer. But you know what? I'm convinced that if you start bathing everybody there in prayer every day praying for them. And if they see Christ in you and you, as you're able to witness to them, over time, you can see change happen, can't you? One person. You might be the only one in your family who is a believer. And over time, through prayer and being obedient to speak up when God would have you to speak up, the difference that you can make in your family. Never underestimate the difference that one can make.